0: For a lot of families, this time of year is all about one thing. Many families have their own specific holiday traditions. For some, it's visiting the tree at Rockefeller Center. For others, it's cozying up around the fireplace to share stories or sitting around the television to watch a favorite holiday movie. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. On 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're focusing our attention on family, togetherness, and tradition. Glad you're with us. We begin this morning with a story from author, poet, songwriter, and actor Annie Lantillotto. The Bronx native is a third generation Italian American whose family life has long revolved around food. She calls this essay
1: Spaghetti and Meatballs. I took out the big pots. Company was coming the next day. First, I made 30 meatballs, big like peaches. Chopped meat, soaked bread, chopped parsley, seasoned breadcrumbs, garlic, good oil, and a couple of beaten eggs. Mix it with my hands, roll the balls in my palms, and throw them in a Pyrex pan in the oven. 350. Then I made spare ribs. Two dozen. Large, meaty pork ribs. I browned them in my new Le Crusette pot that I bought with my book royalty check. Cast iron covered in enamel, made to last. I browned the ribs and threw them in the gravy. It stewed for hours. Turned it with my tallest wooden spoon. Then, chocolate pudding. I knew we'd make a cake the next day, so I figured I'd slather it with chocolate pudding another wooden spoon, chocolate up to the handle. I stirred the thickening pudding on the stove and I thought about the scores of icebox cakes my mother made for birthdays and holidays. Chocolate pudding laid with graham crackers and fresh whipped cream in a lasagna-sized pan. How many squares she spatuled to our plates over the decades? We filled our mouths and bellies to the max, Maron, I turned the meatballs, I let them cool, I let them rest, and then I put everything in the fridge and I tried to get some sleep. The meatballs, the spare ribs in the gravy, the chocolate pudding, everything was tucked in the refrigerator because company was coming the next day for lunch. In Italy, where we're from in the South, Some dishes take days to make. The almond biscotti, the biscotti di mandoli, took three days. Plus, you got to figure the years that the trees take to grow because they grow the trees, then they grow the almonds, then they bake the biscotti. Then there's processes that have to sit for hours. Sometimes it has to sit overnight. It takes time. Take my Zia Isabella. She lives in Acquaviva della Fonte in the province of Bari. She walked her trays of biscotti over to the community oven, and three days had already passed. But afterwards, when she got them out, she fed the whole family, she fed the whole neighborhood, and whoever strayed in, like me, from America. Then take limoncello. That takes about three weeks to make, at least. It's got to sit maybe a month, and vino takes years in barrels. All the good stuff takes time. But today, there's nothing on the stove in half the houses, nothing on the stove. I'm in the car thinking of visiting this relative or that one in the family, and I realize there'll be nothing on the stove. They don't even make a good cup of coffee. You got to go to a Dunkin' Donuts before you even go over the house. That's not like how it used to be. I used to visit my Aunt Archangel any time of the day or night and she'd put out a whole spread like it was Thanksgiving, multiple courses, and I was just stopping by impromptu to say hello. Then I'd cross the street to my Aunt Tessie's house and she'd cover her table with a whole spread. It didn't matter that I just ate across the street. They wouldn't hear it. If you saw the dishes she put out, you really wouldn't believe it. She'd cover half the table and the table could sit 13 people. Then I'd cross the other street to see my grandmother because they all lived in a two-block radius. We never got done eating, and you could never say, I just ate, forget about it. That had nothing to do with it. You had to keep eating. These old ladies, these old Italian ladies are inside me, inside all of us. They possess us. The other day, this friend of mine says she's making soup for my mother because my mother don't feel good. That's another story. Now, my friend, she's a detective in the Bronx, a knock, and she loves making soup. She's about 4'8 in a powerhouse and speaks the truth. She knocks on my door. She's carrying a bag like you'd think she was carrying an animal. She swings this bag into our apartment. She's got five gallons of soup in a 10-gallon pot. This thing's heavy. Five gallons for my 90-year-old mother who downs a teaspoon and she's done. It took me two hours to figure out what containers to pour this soup into to fit some in the refrigerator, some in the freezer. But it was the cure. This escarole menestra from scratch, the cure. But I knew what happened to my friend, the detective. She got possessed in the kitchen. It happens, I know. The same old lady ancestors get inside me. I woke up late. Our company was already knocking at the door. They were early my four- and five-year-old grandnieces and their mother, my goddaughter. I got hugs hello, then I put on the big pot of water for the spaghetti. I put on the gravy in the giant pot. I put on the two dozen ribs and the 30 meatballs. Then I looked over at them, and it struck me. Who am I cooking for? I looked at my grandnieces. I did all this cooking for a four- and five-year-old? For two little girls? I cook like six men were coming over after a day in the fields. They're kids. You might say, ah, you could have grabbed a pizza, give them a sandwich, but no. You don't know these kids. It's too late. They already know. They're already trained. They expect meatballs and spaghetti to come out of that kitchen. They already know the difference between fettuccine, linguine, and spaghetti. They proudly twirl their forks with the long strands, and they've been saying parmigiano since they're two. One day, they popped over as a surprise, and the two-year-old whispers to my mother, Grandma, you have the meatballs? And she looked heartbroken when my mother shook her head no. After we ate the meal, I asked my goddaughter to photograph the empty plates, the white fiesta ware splattered with gravy stains. It looked like we just slaughtered something. We pushed back the chairs and went onto the couch. I popped a video into the DVD player from three years ago, when the four-year-old was one and the five-year-old was two, and we had the same exact dinner. There were close-ups of my mother spooning meatballs out of the smoking hot pot onto all our plates. And the one-year-old holding a strand of pasta up in the air over her head like it was some kind of trophy. And the two-year-old throwing her head back to fit a fistful of spaghetti strands down into her mouth. And the Parmigiano shaker being passed around the table. The white flakes of cheese snowing down onto all our plates. This is the world we live in, this Parmigiano snow globe. We're covered with Parmigiano inside and out. We have the gravy inside us. We ate. Then we watched a video of us eating. It was life imitating art, imitating life, and back and forth. Then we baked the chocolate cake and covered it with pudding. I love pudding, I remember saying. And I remember my goddaughter saying, I don't normally like pudding, but I do like this on the cake. And I gave them containers of meatballs and containers of ribs and gravy and a container of pudding-covered cake to take it home. And I instructed them to make sure the dog got a meatball. The gravy has to be inside us all.
0: Annie Lancelotto is an author, poet, songwriter, and actor. You can learn more about the Bronx native and her work at AnnieLancelotto.com. Lanzalotto is spelled L-A-N-Z-I-L-L-O-T-T-O. Annie and her relatives have clearly spent many an hour gathered around the dinner table, something many families struggle to find time for nowadays. But that kind of together time is critical, so says Emory University psychology professor Marshall Duke. He's been involved in research that shows a strong correlation between family togetherness and a child's sense of self. Professor Duke is on the phone with me this morning. Professor, thanks so much for taking the time.
2: Sure, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So families get together a lot during the holiday season, especially to share meals. How important is it for families to spend time together in that capacity?
2: Um, Well, that's really two parts to to the question. One, how how important is it for families to spend time together? Very. Uh, is dinner a really good time to do that? Yes, it is. It's probably the primary time that the families have to be able to gather together. But the research that we've been doing uh, here uh, at Emory, at the uh, Center for the Study of Myth and Ritual in American Life, uh, has shown us that uh, the dinners really are important because uh, not the dinner itself, but really what goes on during the dinner, and that is conversations, storytelling, structuring of the day, discussing things that happened, giving kids uh, information that they need to know about their family, about mom's and dad's days, but also about the history of the family. We find it's also usually included in a lot of family dinners, especially ones around the holidays, like Thanksgiving dinner and times when families gather together. So if if anything, um, it's critically important for the families to be together. The times that they're together and the circumstances can vary. But it just so happens that our lives are structured in such a way that dinners are the times that the families can come together and just put everything else aside and just be with each other.
0: How did you go about conducting your research for this topic?
2: Well, we started uh, actually in 2001. It was in the summer of 2001. We gathered 40 families who were willing to allow us to uh, record their uh, family interactions at dinner time. Because we were studying the ways in which uh, stories are structured uh, in families, how family history is transmitted from one generation to another. This really rose out of a clinical observation um, by someone who works with children uh, who are having educational primarily difficulties, not so much psychological difficulties. But she noticed that that um, the kids who seemed to be able to respond best to uh, problems that they were facing to overcome them seemed to also be kids who knew a lot about their family backgrounds. And that was just something she discovered in interviewing and chatting with them. And so we decided to test this as a hypothesis. So we went about gathering a group of families to see whether or not we could uh, differentiate the families, not only on the basis of of how much the kids knew about their background, but also on family adjustment and family functioning, how well they got along, how they dealt with problems, and so on. So we had an awful lot of data on these 40 families. The primary bit of information about family history came from something called the Do You Know Scale, which was really something we created, um, 20 questions, asking the kids things they couldn't possibly have known from their own experience but would have had to hear. From stories like uh, where did their parents meet, where did their grandparents uh, live, Uh, what kinds of jobs their grandparents had, and so on. So uh, this this, uh, information, it turned out, uh, was a critical factor in being able to predict the uh, adjustment of the family, the well-being of the kids, and so on. Now this is all well and good, but we couldn't really test it in a way that it came to be tested had not this terrible thing called 9-11 occurred Hmm. because we had gathered all these data in the summer of 2001. So September 11th comes, and all of a sudden we have what's the worst possible experiment you ever could want, but there it was, and that was that every family in, in the country received the exact same stressful situation at the same time. And we went back a few months later and asked the families if they would mind us talking to them about how they responded, how they dealt with 9-11. You remember, you know, we all sort of holed up. We went back into our houses. We closed ourselves in. People went to churches, went to synagogues, talked to each other, spent time with each other. People didn't go to work, all kinds of ways of coping. And we found that the families differed in the ways in which they responded, how they bounced back from 9-11. And we affirmed in that point that the families where the kids knew more about the family history, where there seemed to be a, a broad understanding of what this family had gone through and in its, in its history, seemed to um, be the most resilient.
0: And that stemmed from spending time around the dinner table talking.
2: Yes, talking, spending time talking around the dinner table. Yes, happens to be the the most common place for it. But as Bruce Feiler found when and he wrote in his book on uh, Secrets of Happy Families, when he wrote about our research as well as others, he found that there, so long as there's a time that this, is, that this is done, that's the critical thing. Dinners are the best time, I think, because they combine conversation with nurturance and nourishment, and those are really good combinations.
0: Does this also result in better grades for kids?
2: Um, there's a study at Columbia University. Uh, which showed that um, the more family dinners, up to about three per week that kids have, the better grades they had in school, the less likely they were to get into trouble with the law and things of that sort. And and again, I want to emphasize that that together is the key word. And dinner is a good time to do it.
0: Professor Duke, thank you so much for your time.
2: Sure. My pleasure. Have a good holiday.
0: Marshall Duke is a psychology professor at Emory University. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. On this morning's show, we're focusing on family, togetherness, and tradition. Next stop, Manhattan's Upper East Side, where we meet a man who's keeping a family tradition alive, one pastry at a time.
3: I'm Herb Glazer, a third generation owner, partner of Glazer's Bake Shop. Glaser's Bake Shop. We pronounce it Glaser, uh, but Glazer's fine. Uh, My brother and I run the business now, uh, established by my grandfather right here in 1902. So, Herb, if the bakery walls could talk, what would they say? Who knows? They'd have lots of stories to tell. You know, obviously, the neighborhood has changed so much in in over 100 years. Uh, People, I mean, it's interesting. Even in my lifetime, it's amazing how... How it's changed. There used to be so many more small businesses, now it's really tough for a small business. We are so lucky my grandfather was able to buy the building way back then so that's why we're still here and I think that's the case with a lot of old small businesses. Uh, just the real estate market just doesn't allow for this type of business.
0: What can you tell me about your grandfather, Grandpa Glaser?
3: Not much. Actually, I never knew him. He died before I was long before I was born. He died fairly young. My father took over the business when he was only 18, so I don't know a lot about him, um, but he was very entrepreneurial for his time, definitely. He also bought and ran a chicken farm in New Jersey. Uh, I guess maybe his brother ran that. But from what I get from my father, he was a really nice guy. People really liked him. As they did my parents. Was it expected that your dad would take over the bakery business? Yes, I think it was expected for him to take it over, whereas it really was not expected that we would take it over. My father encouraged us to go to college, which we all did. I have two brothers, Uh, one of them came into the business with me. I went to college, majored in biology, was going to become a dentist. Uh, but didn't get into dental school right away. Um, Got on the waiting list and realized I really didn't want to go to any more school. I was working part-time here at the time and the opportunity arose for me to work full-time and I took it and ran with it and here I am, 39 years later, still doing it. Was it important for you to know,
0: though, that this bakery would remain in the family's hands?
3: Well, that's always a, a, a goal, definitely. Like you know, the next generation now. I'm not positive. My nephew is working part time right now in the in the business. Whether he'll keep it going, whether he'll be able to keep it going, you know, it, it, it's tough. It's hard work, dedication.
0: How many of the recipes are those recipes that date back to your grandfather's days?
3: A lot of them are actually. You know, tweaked, I guess, over the years. But uh, they are a lot of them are basic recipes that we've been using forever. Yeah.
0: Such as for what?
3: Apple turnovers, egg clairs, Danish, uh, some of the cookies. I've expanded some of the cookies, uh, but a lot of them are original recipes. Um, How
0: much time as a little boy did you spend in this bakery?
3: (laughs) Too much. I was a fat kid. (laughs) I told this to other interviewers. Yeah, you know, one of the fun things my father when we were kids my father would ask us every now and then you want to come down and paint some pans sounded like so much fun because we lived right upstairs so we'd we'd come down all excited thinking we're going to do finger painting or something on some bakery pans but of course the pans had to be cleaned first and then painting it with with shortening so that the cakes don't stick to it so it wasn't really as much fun as he made it sound but uh, it was a neat way to get us into the business (laughs)
0: And you live in that same apartment upstairs from the bakery, right?
3: Yes, I do. We have renovated it since uh, back then, but, uh, but yep, still, still right here. Probably one of the few people in Manhattan who have never moved.
0: <laughs> you renovated the apartment, but a lot of the bones of the bakery are still in place. A lot of the same infrastructure, I would imagine, from when your grandfather was here.
3: Yeah, yeah, and that I'm very grateful for. When I was a kid, I used to think it would be so neat to renovate and have all new stuff, but now I'm so glad we didn't because when people find us, they are thrilled to see an old shop like this. What do you attribute
0: your family's success to being able to keep this establishment open for so long?
3: The old German work work ethic, I guess. Just the fact that we have accepted that it is hard work, but that we, I don't know, it's something ingrained in, in me anyway. I love the business, I really, I'm I'm happy here, Um, you know, I get to see the people, especially little kids that get all excited over a cookie or something, you know, it's really nice, I I enjoy that.
0: You mentioned the German work ethic, did your grandfather come from Germany or was he born in America?
3: Yeah, my grandfather came from Germany, from a little town in Bavaria, Walsassen, Um, but my father was born here. And that's my timer. I have to check the oven. Go have ahead, check second. the oven.
0: Business comes first.
3: Don't want to burn the brownies. It'll be scones. You want a fresh scone? <laughs> I, I will really take ready? a fresh scone. Yeah, that's My downfall is that I can get everything super fresh right out of the oven, you know, and that's when it tastes best. So uh, I'll let you sample one.
0: Herb, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Herb Glazer is a third-generation owner of Glazer's Bake Shop on Manhattan's Upper East Side. This is a busy time of year for Glazers and other sweet shops around the city as we celebrate the holidays. And a lot of people frequenting these establishments are out-of-towners here to enjoy Christmas in New York. Next on Cityscape, storyteller Regina Ress brings us a holiday tale involving chocolate, a Swiss family, and the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree.
4: Once, there were six pieces of perfect chocolate candy in a box. It was one of those shiny gold boxes with a shiny gold and silver bow on it. Each of the chocolate candies had been hand-dipped. Each piece had been carefully placed in the little gold nests in the shiny golden box. Each piece was unique. Each piece thought that it was destined for greatness. There was a dark chocolate which hid inside it a perfectly roasted almond. There was a milk chocolate hugging a gooey, golden caramel center. Another milk chocolate wrapped itself around hazelnut cream. One piece was chocolate flecked with bits of candied orange. One piece was shot through with hints of mint. And sitting in the sixth golden pocket in that little golden box was a perfectly round ball of chocolate and butter and sugar, and coffee, dusted with cocoa and cinnamon. My goodness, these were perfection. And they sat in their box on a shelf in a store on Fifth Avenue, right in sight of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. "'Look at us!' they shouted in their silent chocolate voices. "'We are the finest box of chocolate in the store.' Thousands of people passed by, many stopping to look through the window at the display of cocoa pods and seeds and the boxes of fine candy waiting to be bought. At last, one bright winter day, the box, that very box of six pieces of perfection, was bought by a large family of tourists from Switzerland. "'Let's see if American candy is as good as ours,' the father had said." and as there were six members of his family, he had bought a box of six assorted chocolates. It was a warm day for mid-December, and so they sat on a bench facing the Christmas tree, and Fatih ceremoniously opened the golden box. First he carefully drew it out of the black and gold bag it was in. Then he slowly untied the gold and silver ribbon and folded it up and put it in his pocket. Then, with a sweeping gesture, he lifted the lid "'off the box. "'Such ooing, "'such aing "'when they saw "'the six perfect "'pieces of chocolate. "'The youngest child, "'a little girl "'with bright blue eyes "'and long braids, "'thrust her hand "'immediately into the box "'and grabbed "'the milk chocolate caramel. "'She popped it "'in her mouth "'and squished the caramel. "'She was a bit spoiled. "'She was. "'And Fati and Mutti, "'being indulgent parents, "'just laughed at her excitement.' ''Well, and how was the American candy?'' asked Mutti. ''Mmm,'' said the youngest. ''Well,'' said Vati. ''since we started with the youngest, let's go in orderly fashion from youngest to myself, eldest. Choose your piece,'' he said to his next oldest child, a boy. The boy, who also had bright blue eyes but no long braids, chose the mint chocolate. He popped it in his mouth and said, ''Mmm,'' Next, another girl. This was a very orderly family. It actually went boy, girl, boy, girl. She chose the chocolate and orange. Mmm. The oldest child, a boy, he chose the hazelnut cream. Mmm, mmm. Mutti, said Vati. I know you want the dark chocolate almond. Am I not correct? Said this paterfamilias, smiling at his wife. He knew she'd choose that as did her children. Mutti loved dark chocolate. Mutti loved almonds. Put them together. Mutti was in heaven. Ah! That left the perfectly round, outrageously rich, and a bit arrogant truffle. The round ball of chocolate and coffee dusted with cinnamon and coca. It had watched its companions plucked from their golden nests, and without so much as a thank you, gobbled up by this family. It had imagined a different destiny for itself, the center of a banquet, or an awards ceremony at least, not just to be scarfed up by a rude family of tourists. And now, said Vati, my turn. And he lifted his large hand and held it over the last remaining perfect piece of chocolate in the golden box. Just then, the ball of chocolate gave a little bounce and flung itself out of the box. It rolled down the bench, bounced on the sidewalk, and escaped. It rolled between the legs of people gawking at the Christmas tree. It rolled down the steps and out onto the ice rink, where it dodged the flashing blades of happy skaters, tracing a trail of coca and cinnamon powder on the ice. It bounced its way up the other side of the ice rink, and with one tremendous leap that ball of perfectly blended butter and sugar and coffee and cream and chocolate sprinkled with cocoa and cinnamon leapt to the top of the tree where it became lodged on the tippy-top point of the star. And there it sat, proudly, a perfect piece of sweetness on top of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. And there it stayed, until a gentle rain came on New Year's Day, and melted it. Oh, but that's not so sad, for all the goodness and richness and New Yorkitude feistiness of that truffle ran into the ground and made the city just a bit sweeter, a little chocolate blessing for the new year.
0: Regina Ress is a storyteller from New York's Greenwich Village. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can listen to past episodes of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You'll find us on those social media sites as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend.